Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear how brain tumors are typically detected and treated. So when we do uh, imaging to look at brain tumors, uh, we give contrast dye, and that lights up the area of the tumor. Then we'll learn how social and online media can affect medical decisions. Studies have certainly shown that more than 80%, probably closer to 90% of patients look up some form of medical information online. And we'll explore what killed Guglielmo Marconi, the so-called father of radio, in 1937. One of the things he didn't receive uh, for what seemed to be a clear picture of heart failure was digitalis, which was available in those days, but, you, but which he didn't receive. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse, coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a medical ethicist will explain the effect social media can have on medical decision-making. Then, a cardiologist takes a historical look at the life and death of Guglielmo Marconi, but first, we'll talk to Upstate's Chief of Neurosurgery about a brain tumor called glioblastoma. The word glioblastoma has been in the news lately with Arizona Senator John McCain's diagnosis. Dr. Lawrence Chin, the professor and chair of neurosurgery and the medical director of the neuro-oncology program at Upstate, agreed to talk with us about this type of brain tumor. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So glioblastoma, what does that mean and, and how common is it? Uh, glioblastoma is actually the most common type of primary brain tumor. So when I say primary tumor, I'm talking about a tumor that uh, arises in the brain uh, directly. So it comes from a cell that is already present in the brain. So a brain cell? Correct. Uh, there are two broad categories of brain cells. There are neurons, which are actually the, the cells that do the thinking in the brain. And then much more common than neurons are actually the supporting cells or glial cells. Um, and these are the cells that usually turn into a malignant brain tumor. And the most common type is the glioblastoma. Okay. Is this, um, how would you describe this type of, is it an aggressive cancer or... Yeah, it's a very aggressive uh, tumor, and, and certainly I would call it a cancer. Uh, they're fast-growing, um, they're resistant to therapy, and they have a tendency of infiltrating into the brain, and that's what makes them very difficult to treat. Uh, they spread beyond what you actually see is the margin of the tumor on an MRI scan. So when we do... Uh, imaging to look at brain tumors, uh, we give contrast dye, and that lights up the area of the tumor. Well, this tumor um, sends fingers into the brain beyond what lights up on the scan. And so much more of the brain is affected than what you actually see on the scan. And that's one of the reasons why this tumor is so difficult to treat. So even uh, surgically, if you could just go in and take it out, you, you really can't just go in and 
take all of it out. That's correct. Um, it's impossible to surgically cure this particular tumor because it always spreads deeper into the brain than you realize. So do we have any idea what causes this? We don't know. Uh, there has definitely been an increase in the incidence of brain tumors, um, and that's been shown. Uh, and whether that is due to environmental factors, we really don't know. Uh, a common question that people have is, does cell phone use um, correlate with, with this type of brain tumor? And right now, um, looking at all of the various studies, there doesn't seem to be a link. Although there are, you may find one study that shows a little bit of a link, but most of the studies indicate that there's no connection between cell phone use and developing uh, this type of brain tumor. So something else in the environment or the way we're living or? Presumably, um, but uh, right now we really don't know. So tell me, how is uh, this usually detected? How does a patient learn um, that they have a glioblastoma? Well, the symptoms uh, are oftentimes, unfortunately, very common. They're headaches. Um, it could be, uh, it could cause a seizure, uh, or it could cause some type of neurological deficit. So some, um, something that indicates an injury to the brain, and that might be weakness on one side of the body. It might be a vision change. Uh, it could be difficulty with speech or with memory. Um, and, but these are all very common symptoms. So uh, really, what uh, the only way to diagnose it is to get an MRI scan, which is the most sensitive way to look at the brain, uh, and then to do a biopsy or do a, a tumor resection um, where you're looking at the cells under a microscope. So that, uh, when you talked about the symptoms, I remembered that in the weeks before John McCain was diagnosed on the news, there was... Um, they replayed when he was speaking and sort of didn't make sense. Um, right. So in retrospect? That, that was probably an early sign that uh, the speech areas uh, were being affected. Um, and in his case specifically, uh, these tumors can also present by having a bleed. So these tumors can bleed in the brain uh, and cause a blood clot. Uh, but when you go in and you take out the blood clot, you may find that there is a tumor there. Oh, okay. So what are, once, once you do know that that's what you're dealing with, that a patient has this, what are the treatment options? And if, if it's such an aggressive tumor, it have to be done quickly, the treatment? Uh, yes, in general, we recommend treatment uh, as, soon as, uh, as soon as reasonably uh, possible. Um, the first thing that, that you want to do, if possible, is to still try to take out as much as you can. So even though we know that we can't remove all of this type of tumor, the studies show that the more tumor you remove, the better the patients will do as far as survival. Uh, so we always try to do as much of a resection as possible, and that involves doing an opening in the brain. We call that a craniotomy. Um, after we take out as much as we can and make the diagnosis, the standard therapy is uh, radiation treatment or x-ray therapy uh, with chemotherapy. And the chemotherapy is actually um, very well tolerated. It's uh, a pill. It's an oral medication. 
uh, and that's given with the radiation. That seems to be the most effective way to deliver uh, the radiation and chemotherapy. Uh, so you remove as much of the tumor as you can, but the parts that stay behind, would they keep growing? Right, and they'll keep growing, and that's why we give the radiation and the chemotherapy to slow down and hopefully kill the cells that are left behind. Okay, and is it does it have a good success rate? Well, it is definitely successful in that it does kill tumor cells and it uh, increases patient survival. But there's no cure for this type of tumor. And so um, although it, it's effective in slowing down a tumor, unfortunately with this type of tumor, because it is aggressive and it has a tendency to come back, and when it comes back and can be more resistant to the therapy that was given, um, the average survival for this tumor is still around 15 months, maybe a little bit longer, maybe 18 months um, in, in, in better cases. Okay. Now, are there any other FDA-approved therapies that are being used for this? Um, there are actually very few FDA-approved therapies. Um, unfortunately at this time. Um, so other than the, the best standard therapy, uh, which is radiation and the chemotherapy, uh, some other drugs that are used are drugs that slow down the growth of blood vessels. Um, and there's a medication that affects uh, the, the ability of these tumor cells to grow blood vessels, which allow them to grow. Um, there's also uh, chemotherapy that can be delivered directly into the tumor through um, wafers that you can place into the tumor bed at the time of surgery. Um, and then there is a newer therapy that involves uh, placing uh, electrodes on the outside of the head, on the scalp, actually through large, uh, what look like a large array of stickers over the scalp and electrical field can be uh, delivered through the brain. Um, and this is something that patients wear pretty much all day. Uh, and delivering this low level of, of um, electrical uh, field across the head also seems to, to help kill tumor cells and prolongs patient survival. Wow. Uh, the thing with all of these therapy, however, is that they all have side effects. And so the specific therapy needs to be obviously discussed with the patient because the side effects may or may not be um, something that the patient wants to um, go through. So there could be patients that want to just do, well, maybe might want to do nothing, but some might want just surgery and not want radiation or... Um, well, in, I don't find that patients um, tend to want surgery and, and not do at least the standard therapy. Um, and I strongly encourage all of the patients to at least do the standard therapy because we do know that uh, radiation and the temozolomide chemotherapy is effective and is still the gold standard uh, that all new therapies have to be judged against. Okay. What about um, looking ahead on the horizon? What are um, 
Uh, some fields of cancer are doing immunotherapy and, and things of that nature. Are, they, are there things like that coming for glioblastoma? Uh, yeah, this has actually been an active area of research for the last 25 years. Uh, various kinds of immunotherapies have been used. Um, uh, viruses have been used, for instance, um, to directly target the tumor cells. Uh, herpes virus, polio virus, um, various other kinds of viruses have been used. Um, to it, date, nothing has been shown to be better than standard therapy, however. And so that's mm -hmm. why none of these therapies um, are in... Uh, have been approved for regular use. Uh, there are also um, uh, immune therapies where you try to increase the body's own immune system. And so T-cell therapy is something that is very interesting and, and promising. And so the thought is you boost your body's own T-cells, which are the, the immune cells that attack foreign uh, cells inside your body, and direct them to attack the tumor. Uh, and so these are undergoing clinical trials uh, and with some uh, potentially promising results. But again, I caution that these are all still experimental and nothing has been shown to be better than uh, the standard the conventional therapy. This being. Now, when you talk about the T cells and boosting the immune system or getting the immune system to, to ramp up and, and work more, um, I can sort of conceptualize that or, or get it. But when you talk about injecting someone with a virus, why, why would you want to use a virus to fight this tumor? So viruses uh, are theoretically useful because a virus is actually uh, something that goes into our bodies and infects cells. And so viruses, um, there are certain viruses, for instance, the herpes virus that actually attack the brain. Um, which causes disease in humans, but is also an, uh, might be a way of getting into the brain and attacking a brain cell. And so because viruses have this tendency to infect human cells, the thought is that you could use this uh, to attack a brain tumor. Interesting. Wow. Well, uh, with a disease like this and a grim diagnosis, um, what it, how do you talk to patients and families when you have to give this diagnosis? What do you say? Well, it's, it's very tough. Um, you know, the first thing that I always try to um, uh, impart on patients and families is that it's not a hopeless diagnosis. There are treatments that um, do have uh, benefit, and there are some patients that actually do much better than we expect, and so they live beyond the one and a half or even two years that seems to be the average. Um, there are some patients we're finding that have a better prognosis because their tumors are more responsive. And so we're now learning there that there are many molecular tests that we can use. And our pathologists here at Upstate are expert in making these kind of pathology diagnoses so that we can predict that, this, that a patient-specific tumor might be more favorable based on uh, the actual um, molecular pathology of their specific tumor. And the hope is, is that in the future, by being able to more accurately diagnose these tumor cells, and we're doing studies right now looking at this very specific thing, that we will be able to tailor 
the treatment so that um, this is an area where personalized medicine I think is going to be very important in the future. Thanks, that's good information. Appreciate you being here. My guest has been Dr. Lawrence Chin, Professor and Chair of Neurosurgery at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. How social media may affect the medical decisions you make on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Are you friends with your doctor? Do you follow him or her on social media? Dr. Amy Caruso Brown, an assistant professor of pediatrics, bioethics, and humanities at Upstate, is with me today to talk about the use of social media in medicine. She's a pediatric oncologist, an ethicist, and medical educator, and Facebook user. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, you have an essay that was published in the June um, 2017 Journal of the American Medical Association where you talk about friending patients um, or their family members on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Um, you talked about accepting a friend request from the mom of a patient. Um, so yeah. tell us about that. So this essay, um, and I want to first point out that the family I talk about in this essay read it and approved its publication Beforehand. and the discussion sure. of the case and everything. Um, so this was a patient I took care of back when I was a fellow um, who eventually died from her cancer, a teenage girl, um, and had had some difficulties in her care, some challenges where her parents felt things weren't communicated well. And so I didn't hear from them for a long time after she died, even though we were very close and I thought we had had a good relationship despite some of the other rockiness. Um, And then about a year and a half later, I was at home here because I grew up here visiting my parents, um, home from Colorado where I was training, and the little bubble pops up and says, this person would like to talk to you, is sending you a message. And requested that she be added as your friend or that you add her as her friend and it was from the mom of this patient and that really started a long online conversation that has continued up until this day that really taught me a lot about how they saw their care and it was such a unique opportunity to see things from the family's perspective and sort of completely outside of the medical context in which I work. Has that um, relationship colored your sort of personal policy about friending patients and families? Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that I accepted the request in the first place suggested that I didn't start out with a strong policy of resistance or as we sometimes increasingly less, but sometimes teach students, you just say no, you tell them it's absolutely my policy that I never accept requests. And I didn't have really a personal policy of my own at the time, but certainly with this request and since then, I feel very comfortable accepting requests from parents of children who had died, from parents of children who are well off therapy, particularly because when I finished my fellowship training, I moved 2,000 miles away. So Facebook and, and other forms of social media became a really good way to keep in touch with people whose children are 
hopefully cured, done with their treatment, living great lives, but I can follow along and see how they're doing now three years or five years since they finished treatment. Do you have colleagues who say they would never friend someone? Yeah, I I mean, I think I see the whole spectrum, uh, but definitely, particularly people with less experience with social media are less comfortable being friends with patients, but also people who are very, very active, which I'm not in the very, very active group. So I'm not posting every minute of my life on Instagram or every minute of my son. I have a young son of my son's life on Facebook. So for me, it's not really an invasion of my privacy where I think some of my colleagues who are very, very active on social media say, well, I can't accept the request because I'm posting every minute of my personal life and I don't want to share that with a patient. So I think you see those two extremes in who will absolutely never accept requests. But more and more, I think people are in the middle um, saying this is an important part of the grieving process for parents to continue being in touch with their child's oncologist or their child's physician. And social media can be a part of that. And I think there's a lot more recognition of that now. Is there, um, do you see a generational difference among doctors or, or students that are becoming doctors? Are they more likely to be accepting of using social media with patients or, or less? Or it's, it's interesting. I don't, I don't see a consistent generational divide. Mm-hmm. When I wrote this essay, I got actually an extraordinary number of emails from readers, which was really interesting, from, mostly from other physicians, but sometimes other healthcare providers, and even a couple of parents and people who work in grief and bereavement. So I've heard from a lot of people, um, and some of the older physicians said, I had never even considered this as a possibility, but I work in, someone said, rural Mississippi or rural Kansas, and if this is a way that I can provide better care and keep better in touch, I'm willing to consider it. Uh, So I saw that sort of reaction. And I think what I wrote about at the end of the essay is I don't see a lot of resistance from students yet when they are told to not friend patients. Um, And I think some of that is coming from just not, not knowing how this will play out. It's still so new. And developing a confidence of their own over time and Mm-hmm. So exactly. Well, let's differentiate for listeners. Um, social media is one thing, but researching online for medical information can can be another. Um, but they can overlap, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction to make because some of, some of the websites like WebMD have been around for a long time and studies have certainly shown that more than 80% probably closer to 90% of patients look up some form of medical information online. It's a, probably about, I think in the last study, it was about a qu- one in four adults who use social media to actually connect with another person to find out about their illness. Huh. And then... A third distinction in that group would be the people who actually want to connect directly to their physicians. But I think more commonly, people want to connect to other patients. Parents want to connect to other parents of children with cancer. Patients want to hear other people who share their sort of stories and exchange informal medical information that way. Well, especially I can imagine if you get a a diagnosis of something that's rare and you don't know anyone in your circle that has it. You know, exactly. And I think that's the real potential. Um, And I obviously I'm a pediatrician in a specialty that is somewhat uncommon. Childhood cancer is not common. And many of the children we see have very rare cancers. There's also a host of other rare childhood diseases that we diagnose and treat in Syracuse. But there may not be another child with that diagnosis locally. Mm -hmm. And so social media is an opportunity for parents to talk to someone else. Um, I've heard stories from parents of children with rare developmental disorders where they were able to hear tricks for helping their children feed from other parents, things that some 
sometimes physicians just aren't as aware of problems, but in talking to another parent, they can say, oh, your child does that and so does mine, and here's how I worked through it on a day-to-day basis. So I think that's the tremendous potential. Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown, an assistant professor of pediatrics, bioethics, and humanities at Upstate. Um, Some of the information that patients are getting via social media, how accurate is it? That's a really interesting question because we are starting to have some answers that I think the conventional wisdom has been, oh, no, it's not accurate. People, people still tell patients don't go online, and I think that's the wrong thing to do. I think it's we need to give patients guidance on where to look online, how to be skeptical about what they're reading online, how to check the evidence, and I think we need to create a space that is safe for them to come back with what they find online and talk to their physicians about it, but it's actually not as bad as people think. So Elizabeth Gage Bouchard is a medical anthropologist at SUNY Buffalo who has done some interesting work and they studied public Facebook pages of parents of children with cancer. About two-thirds of the information was medically accurate when checked by pediatric oncologists. Wow, that's a two-thirds. Wow. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. About 14% was about unproven treatment, so alternative medicine, things that Western medicine that the kind of medicine I practice just doesn't really have a stance on or doesn't have evidence to back up yet. And only about 20% was medically inaccurate. And I just want to contrast this with some of the research the Rand Institute has done, which shows that at least 20% of what doctors, or only 20% of what doctors say is fully backed up by evidence. Wow. So it's not clear that social media is so bad in terms of the accuracy of what kinds of information parents might put out there or exchange with other parents. Interesting. So, and we've talked about some of the benefits too of just um, getting other ideas from people who've been there. Um, social support, psychosocial support. Yeah, probably- there's great potential for psychosocial support. I think there's risks. Um, so, some things have come out in the literature around children with trisomies, not with Down syndrome, but with some of the more severe forms of, of trisomies, um, trisomy 13, trisomy 18. And some parents feel pressured by other parents to be very aggressive in their treatments or to not move to palliative care when the physicians are suggesting moving to palliative care, moving to comfort care. So I think there's that risk that parents will feel like they have to do things the way other parents are doing them in order to be a, quote, good parent. Um, so that's, but on the other hand, there's all this potential for people, especially people in rural areas or in smaller towns to meet people and talk with people who share experiences. There's even conferences that have sprung up this way, bringing together groups of patients with the same diseases. And what about privacy though? Are there privacy concerns? Yeah, definitely. I mean, particularly with children, they're not agreeing to this when their parents publish their stories or write about their stories, which I do think can be a tremendous outlet for parents and a way of expressing themselves and working through the experience of having a child who's very ill. There's also the problem of that, but the children, the child isn't saying yes. And there have been, as, the, as this is still new, but there are some now adult children, former patients, who have said, actually, I wish my mother hadn't written so extensively about, say, my autism in one case. And now I'm an adult and I wish all and that information still out was there. out there. Everything's out there still. And it's well. still out there. And it is, I think most people know this now, but it's very hard to remove. Even when you take down websites, there's screenshots, there's still information that floats around. So I think that's something for parents to really think carefully about. And even for parents who are not writing about illness, but just writing about their children in general, it's good to take a step back and think, 
how is my child going to feel in 10 years when their classmates say, find this post I wrote about their potty training? And these are all, these are all examples that come up pretty frequently. Um, so it's something to be really cautious about. Well, how can patients and families sort of protect themselves and be, I mean, just thinking about thinking before they hit send or... Thinking before you hit sleeping on it, I think, is probably one of the best uh, pieces of advice that that anyone has given anyone about emailing, tweeting. Um, just sleep on it. Think about what you're saying. I think for parents who are keeping a blog, and I don't want to completely discourage that because I think these public blogs are such a form of support uh, for reaching out to other people. I have learned a lot from following families' blogs as a physician, but if it's going to be completely public, then I think people need to take, be very, very cautious in what they're writing. Consider using pseudonyms, changing details, not publishing their location. Um, just things that would put an extra layer between anyone actually identifying their child, particularly as that child grows up. Well, some uh, are you familiar with Caring Bridge? Because mm-hmm. yep. some websites have some privacy protection sort of built in. Yep, and that's definitely an option, and I think is probably for a lot of people is probably the best option is having a page that isn't completely public. But I have heard such positive experiences of people who are sharing their story fully publicly that they've gotten a lot of great feedback they've met people they would never have met otherwise that I would never say absolutely don't do that that's wrong but it's something to be cautious about and maybe start out with your page or your blog or your posts completely private and then think about whether this is writing that you really want to share with the whole world right maybe family members or close friends Mm -hmm. but maybe not the entire world and maybe even your physician okay Well, let's get back to that. Do you think it's okay for patients to send a friend request to their physician? Um, I think it would, the best thing would be for patients to ask their physician about it. I think a lot of in person. Yeah. It's just to start out with a face to face. Do you ever accept friend requests from patients? Uh, because I think a lot of physicians worry about, they don't want to offend people. They don't want to hurt someone's feelings, but perhaps it is concerns about their own privacy or their children's privacy because they're posting things about their children on Facebook that are only really for friends and family. So that's a great conversation to have in person. I think for the physician who gets that request, that's also a great conversation to have in person, to not just click no or not send sort of generic, I never accept requests, but to talk to the patient in person about why you don't and other ways in which you might be able to communicate when they're not in the office, because that may be what the patient is really looking for, is a way to get their questions and concerns answered in between those visits. It could be, sure. But it could also be, I mean, if you see a physician for 20 years, 30 years, you may start feeling like they're your friend, a real friend. And that's it's true. And I, I mean, I just have to say personally, so my father blogged about his own illness and I had patients who found that blog and followed it and who also reached out to me when he died. And that was, that was a very valuable experience. I mean, that was really part of the reciprocal nature of the bond between a physician and a family that I was a source of support to them, but they recognized when something sad had happened meaningful. in my life sure. too. Well, thanks for talking about this with me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. My guest has been Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown, a pediatric oncologist, ethicist, and medical educator at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. A no-brainer about the Mediterranean diet or a new-brainer about a no-brainer. Well, folks, if you're like most of us, you're probably concerned about developing Alzheimer's disease with good reason. The most stressful experience in my life was caring for my mother as she lost her ability to think clearly and wisely, getting worse and worse over 15-plus years. Early on, she'd get terrified she was dying and call 911 for an ambulance every week or so. In the last few years, yes, years, she'd sometimes make believe she was dead, clamp her eyes shut, not respond in any way, or be convinced that the nursing home staff and I were trying to kill her, yelling, stay away from me, and chase us down the hall with her walker and or hit us without warning. Why? Well, no rhyme or reason, which is probably as good a description of dementia as I've heard. But a much better question than why is, what can those of us still lucky enough to be thinking pretty well do to delay or prevent dementia or Alzheimer's disease? Well, three recent studies have compelling answers. The first two are about components of the Mediterranean diet, which overall has been shown to be good for heart and brain health, but nobody has known which of the diet's specific components are most helpful. So study one asked over 17,000 people what they ate and followed them for six years. Those who ate five servings a day of fruits and veggies were significantly less likely to be demented six years later, and those who ate eight F's and V's even less likely than them. In the second study, researchers supplemented the decidedly non-Mediterranean kibble diet of some Alzheimer's-prone mice with extra virgin olive oil and then checked out their brains a few months later. They found, quote, the consumption of extra virgin olive oil protects memory and learning ability and it reduced the plaques and tangles in the brain that disrupt thinking that are the classic markers of Alzheimer's disease. Now that's, whoa, turned around Alzheimer's disease in mice, but hey, close, we're getting there. The third study built on prior research, which showed regular exercise like brisk walking increases the size of the brain region linked to memory. This new study found if we stop exercising. For as little as 10 days, blood flow to brain areas used for thinking, learning, and memory decreases in just 10 days. So keep moving. So picture this. Waking up to a luscious bowl of oatmeal, yogurt, and scrumptious blueberries or strawberries. The more, the brainier. Later, strolling while chomping on your favorite fruit. I like bananas because they're easy on the move. And then sprinkling that extra virgin olive oil on your salad and or on your grilled veggies. Now that's a recipe for successful aging.
I'm Dr. Rich, Fruit Bowl on the desk, O'Neill. Thanks for checking in. Coming up next, the life and death of Guglielmo Marconi. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Guglielmo Marconi was a leading figure in the development of wireless telegraphy during the age of invention from the late 19th to the early 20th century. He died in 1937 at the age of 63, 10 years after he sustained a heart attack. Here to review the life and death of Marconi is Professor Emeritus of Medicine and Cardiology, Dr. Harold Smolian. Thank you for returning to HealthLink on Air. Thanks for having me. Now, I recall that you've done similar papers on the deaths of President Warren G. Harding and Wizard of Oz author L. Frank Baum. That's correct. And so today you're here to tell us about Marconi. So how did you get involved in Marconi and looking into his death? It's a rather a long story. My previous collaborator on two previous papers was Dr. Bob Pinels, who's a former colleague of mine. He was... um, head of the Division of Rheumatology in the Department of Medicine for many years and then moved on to the medical school in New Jersey. His granddaughter, who's also an author on our paper, uh, Lisa Pinels, is a a candidate for a Ph.D. degree in electrical engineering at Tufts, and she was studying the electrical engineering side of Marconi's invention and recommended that we look into Marconi as a possible source uh, for this paper. Uh, to her grandfather, who got in touch with me so to collaborate neat, again. Neat. So tell me, uh, who was Marconi? Well, Marconi was a uh, very interesting character. He was uh, uh, born of a uh, an Italian and, and uh, Anglo-Irish woman, both of whom were very wealthy. And uh, he was spent the first eight years or so of his life in England. And following that, he returned to what then became his native country in Italy. And... Uh, his, uh, his mother had uh, uh, many connections because her wealth arose from her family c- uh, connection with Jameson Corporation that made, uh, I think, Scotch whiskey. Still does, as a matter of fact. Huh, okay. And he was a scientist, or did well, he... Well, he, he wasn't, actually. That was the interesting part of him. He had very little formal education in physics, but he was a, a, a bright and, and entrepreneurial person who improved on other people's inventions and uh, led to the development of uh, wireless telegraphy. Okay. Now, um, somewhere in your paper, maybe, it mentions that he almost sailed on the Titanic? He did. He, he, his uh, invention for uh, radio telegraphy uh, was then, at that time, part of uh, almost every ship's complement who crossed the Atlantic Ocean. And he was offered a free passage on the Titanic but decided to um, to cross the Atlantic three days earlier on the Lusitania because he liked the t- stenographer on the Lusitania better. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he escaped uh, that. But his invention 
and it led to the rescue of a number of people because they used the radio to call in other nearby ships uh, to uh, save people who were in the oh, water. on the Titanic. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So uh, when did he start having symptoms, and what were his symptoms? When did he, and did he know that he had heart disease? I, I doubt that he was sure of that, but his symptoms in retrospect are almost surely uh, those of uh, angina pectoris, which is now well established to be a part of coronary heart disease, but at that time it wasn't as certain as it is now that so they were related. angina pectoris is chest pain? It's a form of chest pain that's due to okay. heart disease. Okay, all right. So... Um, that's what he seems to have exhibited? He had that for uh, uh, as, as long as 10 years. His first attack was uh, in 1927, uh, about 10 years before he died. And he had intermittent episodes of, uh, of chest pain from heart disease uh, between those two dates. Now, how do you go about your research? Are his medical records out there for people to access? Or Well, one of the problems was that there weren't many record, uh, records available. Mm-hmm. A second major problem, even before that, was that we had to find somebody who could read those records in Italian. In Italian. Oh, okay. And Dr. Villarreal, who's a colleague in the Division of Cardiology here at the Medical Center, uh, was able to read Italian and make those translations. And so he he did the work uh, on the Italian literature. I should add that our library and the library at Le Moyne College were absolutely wonderful in obtaining very rare books and documents that we couldn't have obtained to look at otherwise. Wow. Okay, so it was a lot of pouring over old documentation. Yeah, it took quite a bit of time to review all this. It sounds like it was interesting to you, though. It was. Uh, we also tried to put his medical care in context for the kind of medical care that was available in Italy um, and at that time and how it compared with both American and British medical care of the same disease. Was he, as near as you can tell, was he debilitated by these episodes or the, the symptoms that he had? Did it impact his life? Oh, very much so, uh, especially toward the end. Okay. Uh, in the last few years, uh, it, it, uh, it kept him from attending meetings and going abroad as often as he would have liked. How was he treated? Well, the, uh, the treatment wasn't very good. For anyone uh, on those days, he received nitroglycerin for his chest pain, which was a well-accepted form of treatment. And that's still used today, right? Oh, very much so, yes. yes. Okay. And he received morphine for pain, oxygen for when he was in heart failure. One of the things he didn't receive uh, for what seemed to be a clear picture of heart failure was digitalis, which was available in those days, but which, but which he didn't receive. Any ideas about why he didn't receive that? Well, I think the medical records were sketchy at that time. Uh, It's not clear whether uh, the uh, Italian medicine didn't follow some of the things that were done in America and and in England at that time, or whether the Italian government didn't want the details of his uh, illness very well known or made public uh, because he was such a prominent figure. Was uh, privacy a concern back then? Like it is, you hear about, you know, patient privacy today. Was it as big a deal back then, or I, I really don't know about that. But I suspect that the uh, um, the government of Benito Mussolini did not want much information uh, released about him. They, by the way, had known one another. His physician was the same as the physician who attended Mussolini. Interesting. All right. Well, I saw um, in your paper that, I mean, he was also prescribed absolute rest at different periods. 
Um, is that something that would be prescribed today? Well, usually rest is an important prescription a after a heart attack even today, but not as long periods of rest as, uh, as it was prescribed at that time. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Harold Smolian, Professor Emeritus of Medicine and Cardiology at Upstate, about the paper he's written on Guglielmo Marconi uh, and his life and death. Um, now, he was treated back then in the 1930s, and some of what was done would still be done today. Are there other things that he would be, if, if, if he presented today, what would be done to take care of him? Well, first of all, he would have been hospitalized, and he was not hospitalized in Italy at that time. I think that hospitalization was not a popular form of treatment for the upper class mm -hmm. uh, in, in those days, uh, and uh, so that's probably not too surprising. But a couple of things that um, were not recorded in his medical care was an electrocardiogram which had been invented and was available by that time. Those were available, they but... Were, huh. They were. And the same uh, is true of a chest X-ray, which he never had, uh, or at least was never recorded. Uh, so he may have had these things, but were not available. Uh, were not, the results are not available to us. And that would have told them more about what was happening. It would have helped to confirm the diagnosis of, uh, of a heart attack that he had, yes. And it would have um, demonstrated if his heart was enlarged by X-ray. So today, would he maybe be in a cath lab? Or would he have been sent to a cath lab? If oh, he might very well have been uh, catheterized today and had the uh, narrowings of his coronary arteries or the occlusions of his coronary arteries uh, opened, uh, which is now done almost routinely today. And extends the life of people. Certainly, yes. Now, your paper says he did, um, did little to change his habits and his fast-paced lifestyle. Did that resonate with you with any patients that you had during your time? Um, well, did you... I think patients differ on how they react to their illness, but uh, he certainly was not one uh, to accept the fact that he was uh, uh, rested by this illness or put to rest by this illness. He tried to keep going. He had many contacts and, and many business associations, kept trying to expand the, the network uh, that he had established. So he didn't. He wasn't one to uh, take to his bed. Not too different from people today. I suppose, some people today. Yeah. So, how do you go about, or have you started looking into um, another uh, historical figure that you would look into next? Or well, Dr. Pinels and I are are still searching around for another uh, possible topic. As a matter of fact, he's coming to Syracuse to visit. Uh, he he lives in Boston now, and he's coming to Syracuse to visit next month. And I suppose we'll go over a list of possibilities and see what we can come up with. What sort of feedback do you get from your peers? That, that most physicians are, are modestly interested in their background. But in order to read something about it, you have to go to a history journal, which is a scholarly um, a piece that you have to go and find. I think, now that I'm writing about it, that it ought to be a, a routine portion of regular medical journals, perhaps short pieces here and there, that doctors can read for their own entertainment or interest while they're pursuing their usual goals of keeping up to date. Um, the American Journal of Medi uh, Medical Science is one of the few that will take an article like this. And uh, they are now, they've just had a new change in editor. And Dan Villarreal, who's the, my co-editor on this, and the new editor at the American Journal of Medical Sciences are, are trying to institute a regular section in that journal 
with brief historical articles that might be of interest of general internists. Um, so this, we're hoping that this will be one of the first of, of a set, series. Set the standard and go uh, for... Yeah, very few other standard medical journals will put anything in, take up print space for something like this. Huh. Well, interesting. My guest has been Upstate Professor Emeritus of Medicine and Cardiology, Dr. Harold Smolian. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poet Anne Sutera Botash is a professor of pediatrics at the Golisano Children's Hospital in Syracuse, New York. She is also an outspoken advocate for children and a nationally recognized expert witness in cases involving child abuse. Her poem, Taking the Stand, illustrates how a grand jury receives evidence of such abuse, not wanting to believe such behavior is possible from the child's own family. Taking the Stand. Reasonable cause to believe. These words admonish and command 12 peers and more, proclaimed in marker on hanging whiteboard behind the witness stand. Grand jury job defined. A hearing to determine trial, a process of the law, requires voice behind a wooden rail as evidence is laid bare. The sworn expert, nothing but truth to those unblinking eyes and straight backs, her steady hand on worn Bible, stethoscope jammed in a pocket, khaki pants, jeans, pink sweater, plaid shirt, heels and tailored suit, the jurors breathe in rows and tap uneasy fingers on their knees. She turns and pens the lesson, marking around the phrase, behold a baby bone. A squeak of fracture, underlined, evokes wet eyes in one or two. An arrow here, an arrow there, she teaches. This broken piece meant legs were flailing, and this blood right here? She thinks, so sorry, baby passed away. You jurors, please stay with me. She scribbles the untellable. She knows the lies we choose, not the tooth fairy, Santa Claus, childhood. We accept, not mother, not father. Biology says so, species survival and all. We believe. Love conquers anger and crazy. Minds cling to fairy tales of invisible villains who crept to the crib. The expert thumps the marker. A fist has wrapped the ribs and squeezed and crushed. The pink sweater cringes and fidgets. Khaki pants man chews his lip. Heels and suit dabs at eyes. The expert says the crying stopped. Cause enough. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, 
brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. On next week's show, HealthLink on Air takes a deep dive into the fastest growing occupation of home health aid. And we learn about the role of neuroradiologists in stroke care. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening. Thank you.